I'm Randy Brooklitz, and today we're talking with Dr. Natalie Lundstein. Dr. Lundstein received her undergraduate degree in journalism and master's degree in education from Boston University. She earned her PhD degree in education from University of Oxford. Dr. Lundstein is currently an assistant dean for career and professional development, as well as an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at University of Texas Southwestern. Her work focus is on doctoral student training, workplace learning, and the development of professional expertise. It's that work interest in an article she wrote for Inside IR Ed on career happiness that compelled me to invite her to discuss that article on Pathways. How important is being happy in your job? Let's find out. Natalie, welcome to Pathways. Thank you. So your article in Inside Higher Ed, and for folks who don't know much about Inside Higher Ed, it's an online news magazine, and it's about higher ed, jobs, career advice, and also events for college and university faculty, adjuncts, and grad students, postdocs, administrators to really know what's going on. And on October 30th of 2017, you wrote an article entitled, When Your Job No Longer Motivates. What compelled you to write this article? The trigger for this particular piece was a tweet I saw from the CIA of all places about a Labrador retriever called Lulu. And she had been a bomb sniffing dog for the CIA. And basically she lost her mojo. She didn't want to do the job anymore that she had been trained to do, which was sniffing out explosives. And there was a photo of this dog and the face was just so sad in a way that Labrador retrievers can do so well. And I realized that that look that on that dog's face is something that I see most days when I talk to PhDs and postdocs at my institution about their career path and plans. So I had just made the link between this random story from the CIA about this dog getting reassigned or kind of losing her career motivation and realizing that that's something that's really important to the population I work with. So I, I think, and that's, that's kind of interesting because certainly having trained people and, and graduate students and postdocs in the lab, you see that where all of a sudden they, they run to a wall. And in fact, but when I was a graduate student, my PhD advisor and one of his buddies, they were postdocs, with, they had something called a giant screw, and it literally was a screw about a foot long. And they would say, well, things aren't working because there's a giant screw. And they would send it back and forth to each other, and their experiments would all of a sudden stop working when they are the recipients of the, of the giant screw. And I think in, in some respects, too, it's very easy for students and postdocs to really dwell on, on things that aren't working. Are yes. there certain things that you do to try to address those uh, types of things, like appreciative inquiry and things like that. So, I mean, you have people coming to you all the time and just how you try to address these in the context of what you wrote. A lot of the times, and I've been doing career advising for about 20 years, and it's only in the last five to 10 that I've really focused in on PhDs, postdocs, and more recently in the last five years, biomedical science. But something that's common, I think, across everyone I meet with, whether it's a freshman undergrad or a postdoc at the end of their training is that when they come in and want to have a career chat, 
sometimes it's very straightforward. Sometimes it's, I just want my resume looked at, or I'm practicing for an interview, or I have a, a job offer that I need to negotiate. But a lot of the times when people come in and say, I want to know what my options are. I need to know where I can go. I have to say, take a breath and talk to me about how you got to the place you are right now. Why are you saying, I need to go, I need to get out of here? Sometimes it's legit. Sometimes it really is time to go and the person's done their research. But I would say more than half the time, it's because there is some obstacle, something's bothering them with their work, about their work. Um, you know, and there's many different ways you can go from that moment. But for me, a lot of it's about like, take a breath, figure out. I don't want you going out of the frying pan into the fire. I don't want you making a hasty decision. You know, there's a lot of potential paths for PhDs and let's make sure before you set off on one that you're ready. Yeah, that's that's the major purpose of this of, yeah, of the yeah. podcast to really help give trainees some understanding of the potential options they have. And as as you put really well in your your article in terms of the skill sets that they develop in their graduate and postdoctoral training, it's immense and very broad and applicable to many many different areas. And something that I've learned specifically working with PhDs and postdocs is helping those trainees understand that just because you have a skill doesn't mean you have to use it. So you go back to that dog Lulu at the CIA. She was really good at sniffing out bombs, but for whatever reason, she just wasn't motivated anymore, right? So there's that aspect. You may be tired of using a certain skill. You may have other skills that you love, but don't get to use that often. Um, you may need to develop a skill. And, and go forward on a path that you know, uses a skill that you're only just starting to tap into. And I think something that's missing for a lot of PhDs is thinking about having choice in using those skills. So I do an activity twice a year with my postdocs and grad students, and it's a skill card sort activity. So you literally are holding in your hand a deck of cards that have a bunch of skills. They're not PhD-specific skills. These are skills that can be used with any population but they're certainly relevant to PhDs. It's things like analyzing or um, being creative or communicating with people. And I like the tangibility, if that's a word, about helping my students and postdocs see that they possess skills. But what's really, really important is after the activity of sorting and recognizing that you have skills is this choice aspect and saying, wow, I have a lot of skills, but maybe I don't wanna use them. Something I learned in my own PhD, to my great surprise, is I'm actually really good at statistics, but I don't like it. And if someone told me I had to do that regularly in my job, it's bad enough like managing a budget and keeping track of that. I just don't like it. I can do it and I can do it well, but it would not bring me joy to be doing that day to day. So aspects of that are what went into that article and what come into my day to day advising. So one, one of the things that I thought was really especially compelling here, but very simple is that you wanted people just to get an understanding of what you really, really like to do. Like you said, uh, I like to do other things and what makes you go, Ugh. and for you, the Ugh, was statistics. So how do you really communicate that to your trainees to have them really think about putting it on the table as, as simple as you put it? couple things come to mind on this. One, it's always important to know you have choices and options, right? That makes anyone feel less trapped in any situation. Um, and there's the whole grass is greener, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But just knowing at any moment, I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm on the bench. I could stay on the bench or I could go to, you know, path A, B, or C, knowing options. 
And that brings me to something that in a lot of career work with scientists, with PhDs, is that the first thing people will go to, will leap to, is what are my options? What are the career paths? What are the occupational choices I can make? And that's fine. But I have always thought, and I'm, I stand really firm on this, is that in parallel with knowing what your occupational choices are, you have to know what your own preferences are. What do I value, right? Is it my family? Is it a certain geography? Is it sunshine? Is it you know, a, a good salary. And there's nothing wrong with valuing or prioritizing any of those things, right? And then cascading off of that would be, okay, what skills do I possess and really want to use going forward? So you sort of have to intertwine knowledge of career paths and knowledge of self. And that knowledge of self, I think, is what a lot of people, particularly when they're under stress or not happy where they are, to say, well, I'm just going to look at career paths and I'm going to leap into the first one that looks good or offers a quick escape. And you know, you're not probably gonna be successful making that kind of a quick leap without having some thoughtfulness behind it. You have to, you have, to have stability, you have to be stable in terms of what, when you're thinking about things. You can't, as you indicated in the article, you can't be overstressed because then you're not gonna be able to think clearly. And yeah, no you, one makes a good decision when yeah. they're stressed out, no yeah. one. Yeah, you could make uh, bad mistakes or, or just regret what you're doing, you're bouncing around uh, again. Now, you also said that certainly, ultimately, it's, it's you as an individual, it's, your, it's really on you to make those decisions, to really know what you want and to go from there. So you have to take personal responsibility for it. I think yeah. too, too often we, our, our trainees, they say, okay, I'm gonna be a graduate student, then maybe a postdoc, and because that's laid out. So like being medical school, right? You know what you're gonna do from day one to the end yeah. of the, but then when you're at the next step, it's like, uh-oh, now I have to, instead of having somebody else make decisions for me, I have to make those decisions. Yes. How do you deal cases, with that? Right, you just, like you said, it's been laid out. There's been a linear, almost linear path or expectations. They've not really maybe even had to look for that next step or that next stop in the journey. It's just rolled out in front of them. And it can be really stressful when you're finally at a point where you do have free will. Um, the word I use a lot is agency. You, you know, I say, take your own reins. You have responsibility to take control of yourself and you have your own agency. Um, and that sort of relates a little bit too to having a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed one. Things are not going to happen to you. You know, you can make things happen. Um, and having that sort of resigned, I call it Eeyore a little bit from Winnie the Pooh, is just feeling like, oh, whatever's gonna happen to me is gonna happen to me. You know, that's wrong. That is gonna keep you in misery. So even if these feelings of being stuck at work or unhappy at work, you know, they may be temporary, they may be sign of something bigger, but understanding that you have agency, understanding that you have options, that you can take control, you know, that's what moves you forward a little bit. Yeah, I like the word control, because I think too often people think that they don't have the control, but when they say, you are empowered, you, know, you have the power to control where you go, but you're not on a limb by yourself, you have others who support you, like, like you. But let me ask you this, it's gonna, so as a personal question, so you have a, your undergrad degrees in journalism, Okay, so that sort of came in, the hand, came in handy, <laughs> writing articles for Inside Higher Ed. But yeah. then your master's and PhD is in education. Mm -hmm. So you're not a bent scientist. Mm -hmm. How did you get to where you're at? What's, what was your, your career path to get to be an mm -hmm. assistant dean? 
when I look at my career path, I see the common threads and the way that it sort of unrolled and happened, right? Someone may look outside and say, yeah, how did you get from being a journalist and someone who's always loved writing to someone who works with biomedical science PhDs? And I really do have a niche, I think, working as a career advisor for biomedical scientists, right? That's where I am now. Um, I think the common thread that runs through is communication. I'm, I love writing. I am an extrovert and I love talking to people, but I also, I think, have the soul of a counselor. I really like helping people. Um, so I moved from my journalism role into working, let me see, my journalism role put me into a role where I helped a corporate entity. It was actually the the world headquarters of Gap Inc. in San Francisco, set up their first undergraduate internship program. And that is how I was just excited to be working for a big company and doing something that involved working with people and communicating. And from there, I rolled into roles. From there, I went to Stanford and worked with advising internships and stayed as a career counselor advisor for basically the last 20 plus years. But over time, um, my focus moved more from working on internships to doctoral students. And my own PhD research was on internships and basically how students go into an internship and navigate a workplace. Are they drawing on things that they know from academia or is it about something totally different? And what I discovered is that, yes, it helps to know things from your academic experience when you're interning, but it's more about aligning yourself and your identity with that particular workplace. And at the same time that I was doing that research, I was a PhD student myself. And there's a lot of pressure in PhD programs even today to go on in academia. I did not enter a PhD program thinking I wanted to go on in academia, but I started drinking the Kool-Aid thinking like, but everyone else here is aligning their identity with going into academia. I'm not. So I saw parallels in what I saw with undergrad interns um, on the floor, trading floor of an investment bank with what I and my PhD peers were going through as we navigated our PhDs and thought about what we would do afterwards. And that sort of happened concurrently with basically the economy imploding, academic jobs lessening, you know, the world of work kind of turning in on itself and everyone having a chance to figure out, wow, the old jobs are not there anymore, new paths are opening up to people. Um, it just timed right for me to be a career counselor who was interested in transition with PhDs, you know, and that sort of growth of people who do what I do across the country, advising PhDs on their career paths. So when you were focused on the internships, because you you're got your PhD in England, now was that looking at uh, interns in the UK, interns in the States, or everywhere? No, I specifically did my field work in London at an investment bank that is sadly no longer with us. Um, it was Lehman Brothers. I think I'm still, yeah, I guess I can talk about them. They don't exist anymore. So yeah, I was on the trading floor for three summers following undergrads from Oxford and basically just shadowing them, watching them, doing an ethnography, watching them as they navigated through that experience of going to work for the first time. It was super fun because I mean, they would say things like, wait, I have to sit at this desk for eight hours? Like I can't go take a break or um, having them figure out why people did the things they did, um, you know, why they 
drank coffee when they did to stay awake. Um, and again, this was my fieldwork basically ended about two months before the bank itself closed. So it was also interesting looking back at some of the things that our interns would say, like, I wonder why they're bundling mortgages that way. It doesn't really make sense to me. Um, but that's a whole other story, I think, in terms of, you know, why the banks were doing the things they were doing. Most importantly was the students and their experiences of just looking at this whole new culture and saying, do I want to be part of this? Do I want to continue to do this? And that resonates with, I think, what anyone can do when they're looking at career paths is saying, okay, if I really understand what this career path is, does it, does it align with me, with who I am, with the skills I want to learn, the person I think I am, or the skills and person I aspire to be? That's, it's really as simple as that. It's about culture. It's about understanding yourself. If you don't know yourself, you can't know where you're going to fit in the workplace. Yeah I, I, yeah, I think that's just cuts across every sector, just yeah. completely every, because it's, it's human experiences and, yeah. and fears and dreams and things, things like that. Yeah, and if you don't know what makes you happy, really, you're just not going to find it if you start bouncing from career path to career path, so. <clears throat> Man, people do bounce around. So <clears throat> if we get back to the, to the article, we think about some of the issues that trainees may have when they start talking about to people they are interested in uh, learning from, let's say, were the communication issues and how sometimes it's very difficult to talk to their mentors because maybe the mentor, maybe they never had really the greatest uh, relationship in terms of communication or they're interested in a career path that really turns off their their mentor or their mentor knows nothing about it and doesn't like saying, I don't know, when there are, there are offices and people like you and that's your responsibility and your drive and your role to do that for them. How do you advise folks in, in that situation? Well, I think it is one of the first things I will ask someone if they meet with me one-on-one -on -one and they're talking about exploring career paths or even if they're set on academia. It's sort of, what is your relationship with your mentor? What is your support? system in terms of the people around you who are advising you now, right? You're going to have a mentor. You're probably going to have a committee. Um, there's a phrase we use in career counseling too. That's your personal board of directors. Like, do you have other people who are sounding board who can give you advice, right? I can serve as one of those directors for the students and postdocs in my institution. And, and most institutions are getting a person like me. So, you know, you hope that there's someone to talk through like that, but if you don't have a supportive mentor and you are going to have some kind of a conversation about I'm not following your path, right? There's the ego of the mentor that factors into that. But these conversations become so much easier if the student or postdoc is confident and knows what they're talking about. So if you just go to your mentor and say, mm, I don't really want to do what you're doing, um, but I don't know what else I want to do. That's, that's a wasted conversation. It's much better to wait and let the mentor know what your plans are. Because then if they look at you and sort of shrug and say, well, I don't know anything about becoming a medical science liaison or a science writer or a government policy analyst, um, you can say, don't worry. I know what I need from you. You know, I would like to get that first author paper that we're working on that will help me in my career path. Or I would like to work on project X that I know you have on the back burner. You know, there's a way that you can then help the mentor the more that you understand about where you want to go. So also with that, it helps too to be just 
generally prepared for any kind of conversation that's going to be difficult with a mentor. Like don't go in. And I, you know, I, I'm happy to practice sometimes with some of my scientists because they, they're just so nervous. They've never had that kind of a, I don't even want to call it a confrontation, but a difficult conversation because it's going to veer into territory maybe they've never been before. And I just say, all you can do is prepare yourself. And the more knowledge you have about your own wishes, your own choices, and the career path that you're interested in, what it takes to get there, you know, you can sort of lay out, any boss likes to be told, well, there's a problem, but here's some possible solutions. Here's a way we can do this together. So I guess just being generally prepared whenever you're going to have those kind of conversations and you can prepare by working with your personal board of directors or other mentors or support people that you have. Um, or, and or, just doing as much research as you can to make sure you know what you're talking about when you go in to have that kind of a conversation. Yeah, going in prepared does really help. Of course, there is that book, the difficult conversations as well that that folks ought to read. In terms yes. of, unless you work alone, I think that's a book that's going to be pretty uh, helpful. Speaking of books, yes, you mentioned in your in your article, Susan Scott's fierce conversations. Can yes. you tell us what what that's about and and how you feel it relates to job satisfaction? So I had been recommended by a colleague who works in HR to, to read that book. And I thought it would be something that would be helpful for my students for exactly the thing we talked about, like having a conversation with a mentor, you know, maybe girding up and being more prepared and confident. Um, it wasn't that, but it's been useful to me in other ways. What fierce conversations are, the premise of the book is that, you know, there are very few things that are going to change your life, right? Like, but a single conversation could actually change the trajectory of your career, your work in your lab. Um, you know, these single conversations can actually be really, really important. Not every conversation will be, but some will be. And the premise of the book, Susan Scott is, um, she works mostly in, in corporations, but to go in to CEOs or any situation and say, what is it we're not addressing here? What is the topic that, what's the elephant in the room? What are things that people are avoiding? And it's been useful to me just generally in my work. But I think that, you know, the more I ponder this book, I think it can be really helpful. It's a little bit of a leap for PhDs to, to read that book and think, well, you know, they're not the CEO, they don't have charge, but they can be the person that maybe helps move along, there, there's that agency and taking the reins again, you know, their own situation. They know maybe, maybe something's not right in the lab and if they can address it directly with their mentor, like, hey, here's what's not right. You think I'm headed for the tenure track and I know I'm not. Or you think that I am never gonna get that paper out, but I know that I can. So I think there's a way to extrapolate from that book that will be really helpful to, to PhDs. Um, and you can do, you know, it can come true in all aspects of your life as well. So one of the things that it was, I was reading your article, I thought about when people are, have some concerns about other things they can do. And I had this issue with, with more senior faculty when I was a faculty development dean and their labs were gonna close because they lost their grants or whatever. And it's just like, hey, my identity is a scientist. If I don't do science, if I don't do bench science, I lose my identity. Yeah. It's, it's, it's probably more ingrained in, in people who are associate professors, let's say, but certainly graduate students and postdocs also feel that as well. So 
I'm sure you've encountered that. So what's the, what's the best piece of advice you can give folks who feel that way? Well, it makes me think of the phrase a lot of us say, I am a PhD, not I have a PhD, right? So that you're not defined by just the place you are currently working. Um, I think it's really hard for PhDs in particular because you're just so deep and immersed so deeply in whatever your discipline or expertise is, right? Your identity is wrapped up in that. And then we're in an environment um, which does value, you know, the academic tenure track. So again, I think it comes back to just knowing as much as you can about yourself and whatever paths you are interested in. It doesn't have to be one path. It could be a couple of paths, but being confident and committed to the actions that you're going to make. And, you know, like you said before, being thoughtful um, and really thinking through steps you're going to take. I guess that's the best advice I can give is know as much as you can about yourself and what your options are. um, So that when you're miserable, you know where to go. When you're in a difficult conversation with anyone, you have that confidence to say, no, this is really what I want to do. And I understand the ramifications of making these choices. Um, Yeah. Knowledge is power, I guess. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It, it certainly is. And, and when people do do the, their homework and they, they do investigate things, they do talk to others about what else they can do because of their skill set is so broad. And I think Caleb McKinney, who was one of our guests on Pathways, really talked about that as well. And how do you know when you're ready to talk to somebody and who you can reach out to? And I thought that was really great ad- advice. Yeah. Well, so how, I, I know that Lulu was treated very well by her handlers at CIA. They didn't like uh, put her in jail and throw her away. <laughs> they gave her an opportunity to, to really enjoy what she likes to do. Of course, we, we had a golden retriever and she could, didn't retrieve, so I don't know what to think about that. But, but nonetheless, I guess for folks who are in their training roles, and I think this applies to faculty as well, if your institution really has their best interest at heart, any path they go, then you ought to support that. So if they want to just you know, chase balls in the backyard, they ought to be able to do that and not have any consideration that, oh, you're not really a, one of us now because you decided to do something else. It's like, no, you, you're using your talents and you're happy. And I think that's one of the most important things and that we, we don't really tell our folks enough of that. So if you're not happy, it's not worth it. I mean, the fact that they were tweeting about it, right? Basically, the CIA was saying, we had this dog, and instead of saying she washed out, she's terrible, they were like, we celebrate her. She found another place to go, and she's much happier. I mean, they literally tweeted, like, we're happy. We're happy. We'll miss her, but we're happy she's found a, a better place to go work. Um, that doesn't always happen, but really, like I said, the only thing you can be responsible for is yourself. So if you are happy with the choices you've made, um, then that's really all that matters. We can't all wait for a handler to tell us where to go next. You know, you have, <laughs> Lulu couldn't talk either, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> you know, you can tell people what it is you want to do and get yourself there. Yeah, and, and it, I, I think that's really important. Uh, agreed. It's like people, you are, you are in control of your destiny, but know that you are not alone. You're not 
on the end of a limb and, and nobody's going to support you. You have people around you who want you to be successful. Those are the people you seek out. Those are the people you constantly talk with and they will help you do this and find your path. Ultimately, it's your decision, but they can help you there and realize that you're not alone. I, I, that's one of the most important things to me is, is mentoring students and postdocs and faculty that you know, it's, you're not alone. You have colleagues who care about you and, and want you to be successful because otherwise then we're not doing our jobs. Exactly. But Natalie, is there a question that I should have asked you about your article or about you that I, that I had? I thought you were going to ask me if I'm happy in my job. <laughs> oh, I was actually. So that's so, so because obviously the people at UT Southwest are going to hear this. So I, I can imagine what the answers, answer ought to be if I'm uh, one of the administrators there. So yeah, so how, let me ask you, how do you find happiness in your job? Well, I love my job. I would say that the job I have now is the single best job I've ever had. Um, and that's because I get to do all the things that I love. I get to help people. I get to write. I get to talk and teach. I get to um, spend time schmoozing with awesome, really smart people. I get to travel. I get to, did I already say meet new people? I guess hang out with cool people and meet new people all the time. So it does bring together all the things that I love most, but you know, I'm pretty far along in my career. Like it has taken me some time to get here and nothing frustrates me more than career panels of alumni who say to an audience of about to finish PhDs and postdocs, like, look at me up here. Look at this awesome job I have. And the thing is like, no one gets to sit up on the stage or say what I've said about having the most awesome job ever without heartbreak along the way with like twists and turns and zigs and zags and, you know, decisions that you've had to make that weren't what you wanted to do. Um, but, you know, ultimately it does all work out and you got to just embrace the journey and go with it. So I love my job and I love most of all the fact that the biggest part of my job is helping other people see the possibilities for where they can go to. I think that's great to end on. That's a wonderful, so thank you very much. You're welcome. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Natalie Lundstein, for discussing her article on career happiness and the importance of taking control of job satisfaction. Whether you're a graduate student, postdoc, or already in the workplace, the lessons she shared today should resonate with all. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website, SoundCloud, and on iTunes under IUSM Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcasts, for some of our interviews, we've captured the video as well. Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career path and experiences of professionals who hold a PhD which landed them in their current and very exciting position. I'm Randy Brutkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brutkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.